Why don't you grab your Bible and your notes and uh, let's get to it. We're, uh, we've been going verse by verse and we're in the book of Isaiah. So uh, chapter 36 is where we left off last time. And so we're going to dive right in on this nice Wednesday. What a nice evening. Uh, man, it'd be nice to be outside tonight. Uh, some of you are. I've noticed some of you guys do your watch parties on the backyard. It's kind of cool. So uh, good for you guys. Um, we are in a fun new sort of section of Isaiah. You say, Brent, something in fun in Isaiah. Yeah, Isaiah has been pretty tough, pretty rough. And um, it's, it's been a lot of woes unto the rebellious children of Israel and woe unto Ephraim and woe unto the Assyrians and woe, woe, woe. It's just been this heavy sort of exchange. But we, we change sort of the vibe here because we get to more of a storytelling mode where Isaiah tells us now what's going to go down. Now, if you recall, the Assyrians, um, there were two sort of waves uh, and, and the northern tribes, Ephraim, as it was called, or Israel, would have been taken years earlier by the Assyrians, uh, the northern tribes with hooks in their noses, hooks in their jaws. They were dragged up to the land of Assyria and they became sort of an assimilated group of people. Um, and uh, there were some sort of mixed Assyrian Jews that eventually would come and settle Samaria and they would be called the Samaritans. Um, but now, a long time after that, um, now the southern two tribes um, would be nervous because the same Assyrian army, uh, maybe even more powerful than before, is now coming and breathing down their neck. And uh, this is a scene that they've seen before where these Assyrians had come and threatened them. If you remember, Hezekiah paid them off with the gold from the temple. He got all the gold off the doors and scraped all the gold and piled up the gold and said, here, you know, give this to, to Sanhariv, uh, Sennacherib as some people call him. Uh, uh, but they said, let's pay him off. And, you know, you never pay off the enemy. The enemy's never satisfied. I hope you understand that. If you give in to the enemy and give him an inch, he'll take a mile. That's true with general enemies, but it's definitely true with our enemy, Satan. If you give him a little inch, he'll take a mile. And that's really what Sanhariv, with his sort of representative named Rav Shaka. I, I call him Rav Shaka. Um, uh, you know, you might say Rav Shake is the way they would have said it, but it doesn't rhyme with the trash taka, Rav Shapa the taka. So anyway, uh, you remember who he is. As we were studying the story in the, in the books of the kings, this story will be familiar. You say, well, why is it twice in the Bible? The reason is really because um, this is from Isaiah's perspective. Uh, and so we're, we're hearing this story kind of from the prophet's point of view. And, uh, and we referred to this part of the story back when we were in the Kings. Um, so this, this will be somewhat uh, reminiscent to those studies we did back in those days. Um, but it's good to review stuff and bring to remembrance um, the things that have actually happened, you know, in the, in the Bible. So, so really in chapter 36, we pick it up in 701 BC. Now you say, well, how do we know the exact day, date, you know, or, or the well, it tells us right here in the very first verse. In chapter 36, it says, Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah. So we know that this has to be 701. We have other scriptures that kind of give us the hint as to when these things happened. So 701 BC, for you that like to kind of figure out what time period of the world 
this was, 701 years before Jesus came. Um, and, uh, and, and so what's going on here? Well, um, it says, Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, uh, king of Assyria, came up against all the defended cities of Judah and took them. So really, you have to understand, they've already done some serious damage to all of Judah. The only place that's standing or left is, is the Jews that are shaken in their sandals there in Jerusalem. Jerusalem would be the capital city of the southern two tribes, and it's the only city left. And, and you know, it, it, they're hanging by a thread. That's the imagery we need to understand. In fact, the imagery here is almost like a good movie. Somebody should make a good movie out of this story because it is pretty radical. Um, but there's Jerusalem. The, the Jews are hiding out under siege by the uh, Assyrians. And Rabshakeh, the representative, he's sort of the guy in charge on the ground there uh, representing Sanharif, who's not there, it seems, at this time. Or at least he's not coming out of his kingly you know, pavilion or tent. Uh, we know that he's not there, but Rabshakeh is doing all the talking. Um, and he's going to be part of this story uh, right at the front and center. So they've come up against all the cities and took them. And verse two, it says, the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem unto King Hezekiah with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. Now, the fuller was the one who bleached out all the clothes. <laughs> um, you know how um, when Jesus was transfigured, it talked about the, no fuller had ever made the robes whiter than when Jesus was transfigured. That's the, what the fuller did is clean the clothes to be bleached bright. Um, but that's the place where this happened at the fuller's field where they did this. So you even can kind of know where in Jerusalem this happened. Now, the main thing about this that you might say, well, big deal, fuller's field, whatever. But the, the point is, this is the second time this Syrian army, a Syrian army, had uh, come through the Fuller's Field. This is like a, a replay. Uh, you can almost hear the Jews groaning behind the walls of Jerusalem saying, oh no, not again. Here they come down the Fuller's Field, this huge army besieging Jerusalem. Um, uh, and so now, what do the Jews do? Well, it says in verse three, then came forth unto him Eliakim, Hilkiah's son, which was over the house, and Shivna, the scribe, and Joah, Asaph's son, the recorder. Now, if, if you're jotting down notes, we're going to divide these next two chapters, really, into some nice little uh, descriptive uh, points, if you want to take notes here. Um, point number one, the setting. The setting, verses one through three right here. The setting uh, here is, of course, in Jerusalem, um, the Jews shaken in their sandals in the, in the city. Sanhariv uh, sends Rabshakeh, this uh, you know, commanding officer of the Assyrian army, who's also the spokesperson. And, uh, and the Jews have these three dudes that they send out. If you could almost picture like in the movie Braveheart, when you know, William Wallace and his two guys, or three guys, ride out into the field uh, to their three or four guys. And the, their army is, you know, the bad guy's army is, is huge. And they're just mocking and laughing as they're riding up. Well, that's kind of the scene here. You got these Jews stumbling out of Jerusalem. Uh, these, these, and basically it's, it's uh, Hezekiah, the king's sort of cabinet 
uh, that's representing the king, Hezekiah. So these, these three guys are going out to visit Rav Shaka and sort of have that conference out in the field before the city. And, um, and this is really the scene. It's like, like there's been a hundred movies with this scene. This is what happened right here. So this, the, the setting is, is just that. Eliakim and Shivna and Joah come out to meet Rav Shaka. So that's number one, the setting. Number two, we have uh, the commander's mockery. The, the number two section, verses four through 10, is where commander uh, Rav Shaka is going to uh, do his trash talker stuff. Uh, and he's gonna, he's gonna try to freak everybody out. Um, remember, this is what the enemy does. He wants to make people afraid. Um, and that's kind of the theme here uh, in this chapter, particularly. You know, it's a reminder that the Lord doesn't want his people to be afraid. Um, be strong and of good courage, the, the Lord reminds his people over and over again. Um, the, the scriptures declare that the Lord would not have us to be given over to that spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. Christians should not be afraid uh, of the devil. I, I get this kind of a funny thing when I see... Um, Christians sort of being weird when it comes to the devil. Ooh, the devil's devices, and everybody gets all heebie-jeebie and sort of weird. But we are not to be given into that, that kind of that spirit of fear. Uh, you know, you'll see it, oh, you know, I don't see it as much anymore, but I, I, I remember seeing, you know, on Christian TV stations back in the 80s with televangelists and what have you. I remember, um, you know, seeing this one guy who was casting out demons on TV and and he was getting into all these gyrations, and he would say stuff, spirit manifestation, spirit manifestation, and all, all these people are watching, and people are flopping around, and, and it just felt really wrong to me. Of course, those guys always prove to be sort of charlatans, and uh, a lot of fakery goes on when it comes to that kind of stuff. Now, don't get me wrong, Satan is powerful, but greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And even though the enemy might seem strong, we, we need to keep it in perspective who's the one who's truly strong? The greater one that's in you is Christ. And uh, we have victory through Christ. And uh, we don't have to be freaked out about the enemy. Um, and, um, and, and this is something that we're going to, you can almost taste it here in, uh, you know, Isaiah chapter 36, where, man, this has got to be a scary time for them. And this is going to force the Jews to say, do we trust the Lord or not? Um, and I think there's times in life where you really are forced to, to decide, am I going to be a person who trusts the Lord or, or not? This is where the rubber meets the road. Now, could it be that we, we are in one such a time as this, as we uh, f are under the threat of the coronavirus, uh, as we're under the threat of not being able to meet as a church? Who would have thought we couldn't be a gathering in the church building um, under the rules of the local government, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, and, and what do we do about that? And something that we, you know, continue to pray about and, and uh, ask the Lord for guidance and direction. Um, but, you know, it's something we shouldn't be freaked out about. Um, and this is where the rubber meets the road for many of you. Some of you are afraid of the coronavirus. Others are afraid of the unrest and the division in our nation and, and what's happening. Some people are afraid of what's gonna happen with the economy. I know a lot of people are buying up gold and they're afraid that the, the economy is just gonna totally blow uh, and, and it's gonna burst like a bubble. Um, who knows? 
but all that to say, people are really nervous. These are shaky times. But I believe that God's people are called to a certain confidence, um, a certain quiet confidence where we just trust the Lord and we're not easily moved or shaken. Man, I would, I would encourage every one of you to, to consider yourself of where you're at and, and be careful not to project fear because there's other people watching you. Um, and the enemy knows that, by the way. We're gonna see in this story the enemy's tactics. And by the end of the evening, hopefully we'll summarize some of those tactics. But, um, you know, the Bible says that we're not to be ignorant of Satan's devices. And so there's a lot shown right here. This is almost, you know, like the devil's playbook. Uh, we're gonna see all of that here in this guy, Rav Shaka, who is gonna try to freak out the Jews. But the key is what the Jews do, and particularly what Hezekiah does, is worthy of our, you know, uh, you know, observation and consideration tonight. So number one, the setting, verses one through three. Number two, the commander's mockery, verses four through 10. Let's see what old Rav Shaka has to say to these guys who've come out into the battlefield to sort of talk about what's going on. Verse four, it says, And Rav Shaka said unto them, Say ye now to Hezekiah, thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, what confidence is this wherein thou trustest? I say, sayest thou, but they are but vain words. I have counsel and strength for war. Now on whom dost thou trust that thou rebel against me? Lo, thou trustest in the staff of this broken reed on Egypt, whereon if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and all that trust in him. Now, let's pause right there in the middle of Rabshakeh's mockery speech. Um, he starts off with this whole rhetoric, you know, of, of basically saying, who do you put your trust in, you feeble little Jews? That's what he's saying. He's saying, you know, um, has, has Hezekiah, um, you know, been your king? You tell old Hezekiah that you're putting your trust in these Egyptians. Now, you and I already know what happened there. Yes, the Jews did sort of make an alliance with the Egyptians. But since that time, they broke their alliance off and said, we're not gonna trust in Egypt. Remember that whole Isaiah 30 section of scripture where they, they took the counsel of men, but not of God, and they aligned themselves with the Egyptians? Um, the world is the, is the type there in the typology of scripture that the, the Jews were saying, we need help. God's not gonna help us, so we're gonna go to the world. And they went to the world and the Lord said, okay, if you do this, the, the Syrians are gonna just totally trounce you guys. And if you recall, the Jews repented and turned their alliance away from Egypt and said, okay, we're gonna trust the Lord. And the Lord said, as you do that, I will whisper in your ear whether to turn right or turn, to le turn left. I'll be the one to protect you. I'll take care of you. So here, Rav has got some old news where he's saying, you guys have put your trust in Egypt. And he gives this little imagery that's kind of funny. Egypt's like a broken reed. And if you try to lean on it like a cane or whatever to help you, it's so tiny and thin, you lean on it, it'll poke right through your hand. Hmm, interesting imagery, uh, a reed piercing a hand. Um, but that's the imagery. You're gonna lean on Egypt, it's just gonna end up hurting you. And it's not gonna help you at all. That's what he's basically saying. Um, and so, you know, he says that this broken reed, Egypt, um, 
And, you know, the, the thing is, um, who are you trusting in, you know? Lo, verse 6, it says, you know, thou trusteth in the staff of this broken reed on Egypt, wherein if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to, to all that trust in him. You know, um, who, who are you trusting in? That's the question. We have to watch this question throughout this whole story. Am I putting my trust in the world or am I putting my trust in the Lord? And at any given moment, I might be doing one or the other, but um, I've noticed they're in direct conflict one with the other. Some put their trust in horses, others in chariots, but as for us as, as Christians, we're gonna put our trust in the Lord. That's the idea. So um, this, this Rav Shaka is saying, what are you gonna do, trust in Egypt? You know, Egypt's no big deal to us is the idea there. He goes on in verse seven. But if thou say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, which by the way, that's what they were saying. They said, we're not actually trusting. See, Rav Shaka, is, he's a smart guy. Um, and by the way, the enemy that we have on our uh, opposition is also smart. Satan's not stupid. I think some people think he's a little red guy with a pitchfork running around doing little de- evil deeds. Um, no, he's, he's a very smart, um, tactical guy who's trying to destroy and mess you up. And so he, this, this guy said, you guys put your trust in e- Egypt, but even if you don't, because he's anticipating that maybe they're not now and they're putting their trust in God. So he says, but if thou say to me, we trust in the Lord our God. Now notice the word Lord there is in all caps, the little, the little caps. That means that Rav Shach is directly saying Jehovah, the God of the Jews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, not, not any pagan God, not, you know, gods in general or, you know, whatever. He's saying, you think your God, Jehovah, the God of the Jews, um, you know, is going to save you? He says, even if you put your trust in Jehovah, your God, um, it is not he, verse 7, whose high places and all, pardon, pardon me, is it not he? whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah hath taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall um, worship before this altar. Now, this is fake news right here. (laughs) Rav Shaka is saying, isn't this the God that you're putting your trust in, Jehovah, the same God that your king Hezekiah tore down all the altars and the high places that are for this God? And you think this God's gonna help you? You see, the enemy's just stirring up trouble, but what he's doing is he's saying stuff that uh, is just not true. Uh, First of all, we do know that Hezekiah, in fact, uh, tore down pagan places, high places. There were no high places that represented Jehovah, the Lord God of Israel. Those high places, God wasn't to be worshiped in the high place. God was worshiped at the temple or in the tabernacle, but never in the high places. The high places were always for the pagan fake gods. You see, Rav Shaka knows just enough to be dangerous, just like the enemy. And and he's trying to just stir up trouble. And and here's the Jews hearing this guy articulate, isn't this Hezekiah who's sort of wishy-washy as far as what gods he's worshiping? He's tore tore down your your, uh, altars that that were for your God. What do you expect from this king? But truthfully, the true story is, Hezekiah was decisive and tore down the pagan altars. Um, That's what actually happened. Do you know that the enemy is a liar? The devil is a liar. And he wants to stir up confusion. You remember James 3, where we read about how this 
this wisdom comes from the devil, is earthly, sensual, and devilish, that which is strife and confusion and every evil work. That's what it says in James 3. Now, the wisdom that's from above is pure, peaceable, easy to be entreated or enacted um, without hypocrisy, full of good fruit and peace. Um, that's, that's from the Lord. So this, this uh, Rav Shaka uh, representation of Satan really is doing what Satan does, likes to stir things up, cause consternation and frustration and misinformation. Um, that's, that's what dev- the devil does every time. If you recall, remember when Jesus was taken out into the wilderness, you know, for the 40 days and 40 nights, and, and he was tempted of the devil. And, um, you know, the devil starts quoting scripture. Jesus answers every temptation with scripture against Satan. But do you remember when, when he said, cast yourself off the pinnacle of this temple? And, if, and you know, and, and then Satan starts quoting the Bible at Jesus. Can you believe that? He says, and he shall give his angels charge over you that you not dash your foot against any stone. So do it. The Lord, Lord promises he'll take care of you. But if you recall, he quotes from the psalm there. You know, David wrote this psalm and the devil's quoting David, but he leaves a little phrase out. Um, He twists scripture just a little bit. Uh, The trained eye notices that Satan misquotes that little verse when he says he shall, you know, give his angels to keep charge over you to keep thee in thy way. Uh, Not to go jumping off the pinnacle of a temple, uh, for Satan. <laughs> uh, the idea is the Lord will protect you as you're in the way of the Lord. As soon as you go out of the way of the Lord, you're kind of on your own. And it would not have been the way of the Lord for, for Jesus the Messiah to bail off the temple to get the kingdoms of the world promised by Satan. That was just a twisting of Scripture. And you know, it's interesting because I see people twisting Scripture from all directions. The world talks about the Bible and they they twist scripture and they only give partial truths. But if we're not careful, we as Christians, if if we're not careful, we can misquote and and misappropriate scripture when we don't take it in context of itself. And that's one of Satan's devices and we shouldn't have any part of that. Here's Rav Shaka saying, didn't Hezekiah tear down all those altars that were your God? No, they they weren't Jehovah. They were gods like Baal and Ashtoreth, and Moloch, and Hezekiah rightfully tore down those altars. Again, Rav Shaka just putting out fake news, misinformation, uh, to try to, uh, you know, confuse the people. There in verse 8, it says, Now therefore give pledges, I pray thee, to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give thee two thousand horses, if thou be able on thy part to set riders on them. (laughs) Wow, the audacity of this dude. What's he say? You guys be our servants, be our slaves, and pay us money. And if you give us money, we'll give you a couple thousand horses, if you can find men that know how to ride horses. That's what he's saying. He's just mocking them. Um, by the way, there were, you know, the Jews were known to not be horsemen. Um, they, for whatever reason, never really did in history get great at, at being horsemen and charioteers. Uh, they never really did. Uh, while other cultures around them, the Philistines and the Uh, Amorites and others, they knew how to ride horses and have chariots, the Egyptians, but the Jews never really did it. During the time of Solomon, it's when they got horses and chariots from Egypt, but that didn't go so well for them. So it's it's almost like Rav Shach is sort of rubbing it in things that the Jews already know. We're not horsemen. We're not good on horses. Um, 
so he says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you $2,000 if you can find a person who's man enough to ride a horse. That's what he's basically saying. He's, it's, it's not that he's really wanting to make a deal. He's just wanting to mock and diminish and uh, make these guys feel horrified. Verse 9, how then wilt thou turn away the face of one, of one captain of the least of my master's servants and put thy trust on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? And am I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up and destroy this land and destroy it. Oh no, not God told me to tell you. That's, what's, that's what Rav Shach is saying. He's saying, what, you think you're going to go get Egypt to help you? Hey, you think God's on your side? Not so. Rav Shach says, the Lord told me, and, and notice here, he says that, am I now come up without the Lord? Lower caps, Jehovah, the God of the Jews. He says, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Jehovah, the God of the Jews, said unto me, go up against this land and destroy it. Now, here's an interesting question. Did the Lord tell Sanhariv or Rabshaka to go and take this land? Um, you might say initially, well, no, he's an evil guy. And he, but be careful because it seems that maybe this was all part of the Lord's plan to begin with. The Jews had been in rebellion for so many years that God was doing a work. As brutal as it was, the Jews needed to learn some serious lessons. And the Lord was using Assyria as a tool. And it could just be that the Lord said, yep, go up and destroy these cities. Now, um, I'm pretty sure that the Lord didn't tell him to go destroy Jerusalem, but maybe all those other cities. But it is interesting how the Lord uses the pagan nations and the pagan people to do some of his work. Don't you wonder sometimes if America is ever in the Assyrian role? Um, you know, we, we were instrumental in World War II of, of wiping out Hitler uh, and his, uh, you know, Nazi plan to exterminate the entire Jewish race. And if it really wasn't for the United States of America and fortunately us winning the race uh, to the nuclear bomb, we, that would pretty much ended everything. And uh, everybody kind of put up their arms at that point and said, okay, we can't, we can't fight against a nuclear bomb. And, but because of that, the Lord used the United States to save the remnant of the Jews that were left from this Holocaust that happened. Makes you wonder, what is our role as Americans? You know, what, what, what does God want to do with us even in the future? Right now, we're one of the few friends of Israel. Um, but does the Lord need America? Um, just like does the Jews, did they need Egypt? Um, the, the answer is no. God can do whatever he wants, with or without the Assyrians or whatever. But it does seem that God uses nations for his purpose. And he raises men up and puts men down. And a lot of times people say, well, God is on our side as Americans, because we, in God we trust. Um, and we, we always ask the wrong question, is God on our side? No, we have to ask the question, are we on God's side? And one of the things that I'm concerned about as a patriot, as, as one who loves you know, this nation and loves celebrating the 4th of July, although this year the 4th of July celebration was a little bit dampened by uh, the mood of what was going on in our nation. But um, I have to ask the question, are we on God's side? And it seems that we're largely not. Um, it's not as much the question, is God on our side? The question is, are we on God's side? 
And the further away we move to our own way, against the Lord, against his word, it puts us more in that Assyrian category where God's using us as a nation through thick or thin, good or bad or ugly. But man, we don't wanna be that nation that is contrary to God. And we're moving there really fast. Man, we need to be praying for this nation, praying for our country, on our knees before God, humbling ourselves as God's children, praying. Um, And if we humble ourselves, then God just might heal this land. You say, well, Brett, you shouldn't say just might. Don't you know what the scriptures say? I do, but context that he's talking to the Jews. <laughs> he, he, that's a Jewish promise um, that we like to claim. We, I've noticed we Gentiles like to claim some of those Jewish specific promises. Um, and I think we can pray for those things, but I'm not sure we can name it and claim it uh, necessarily. But I do think that it'd be good for us to be humble and to follow what the Lord told the Jews to do. Humble ourselves, go to our knees, and pray for forgiveness first, and pray for healing second, and then pray for direction third, that the Lord will give us direction as a nation. Because we've lost our way, we've lost our compass, and we've gone our own way. And the reason that's of concern, when I read stories like this, I start to feel like we're in the Assyrian kind of category, you know, where the Lord's using us, yes. But the Assyrians are gonna be destroyed ultimately. Um, And that's part of God's plan too. (laughs) So we don't wanna be that. But here in verse 10, Rav Shaka says, yeah, God told me to tell you that I'm supposed to destroy this, this, these cities. And I wonder if the people are like, well, I wonder if he heard from God. You, you don't know what the Jews were thinking, but you can only imagine, you know. Um, but all that to say, you know, God told me to tell you that I'm, we're supposed to go to this land and destroy it. Well, uh, now, this brings us to the third section of this chapter. The first section, if you recall, we, we've seen the setting, number one, the commanding officer's mockery, Rabshakeh. And now we're going to see the cabinet's challenge. That is, the, the three guys that are the cabinet or advisors for Hezekiah. It says there in verse 11, Then said Eliakim and Shivna and Joah to Rabshakeh, Speak, I pray thee, unto thy servants in the Syrian language, for we understand it, and speak not to us in Jews' language in the ears of the people that are on the wall. What's going on? As it turns out, Rav Shaka speaks perfectly fluent Hebrew. He's this Assyrian dude that's speaking Hebrew, and he's big mouth, and he's really loud. He's saying all these intimidating things. You guys can't, if you're lucky enough to find a horse and a guy who can ride it. You know, he's talking all this stuff, and the Jews are like, hey, dude, stop talking. We understand the Assyrian tongue. You talk to us in your language, because you're going to freak out all the Jews standing on the wall listening to this. Um, Now, (laughs) this is where it gets interesting. Rav Shaka, look what his response to this is. Verse 12, but Rabshakeh said, hath my master sent me to thy master and to speak these words? Hath he not, this, uh, not sent me to the men that sit upon the wall that they may eat their own dung and drink their own piss with you? Uh, do you sense that he's trying to be sort of inflammatory here? It's, it's almost like they said, Rabshakeh, stop talking in Hebrew. Oh yeah? And he starts talking in Hebrew again and he's threatening the men on the wall trying to make them freak out altogether. It's like he, he, he takes it to the next level uh, when, he, when he uses this language. Um, by the way, a big mouth is often an indication of a bad heart. 
This guy's a bad dude, Rav Shaka, and he's got no, uh, no heart, but he's, he's just talking vile stuff. Then, verse 13, Rav Shaka stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language and said, Hear ye the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus saith the king, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you. Now pause for a second. What's he do? He, he he's now turns from the three guys that rode out into the battlefield to talk to him privately. Now Rabshak is yelling out to all the men on the wall saying, here you guys, your king is just trying to deceive you. And he's speaking this in perfect fluent Hebrew. Did, did you know that Satan knows Christianese, the Christian lingo? Um, do you know that Satan knows how to intimidate with uh, the, the faithful? You know, it's an interesting thing how the enemy has made it sort of, um, I think, a normal mode of operation just to talk the godly language so that we don't know whether it's of God or whether it's from Satan sometimes. And sometimes it's hard to discern, man, is this true or false? Is this something that's coming from Satan or is it coming from God? Um, now, there's a few safety nets that we have, and one is the Word of God. Man, if, if anything we're hearing goes contrary to what the written scriptures say, we can know that's not of God. But other than that, the Lord gives us a few other tools. One is discernment, just by His Spirit. In fact, one of the, the manifestations of the Holy Spirit working through a person's life is this idea of the discerning of spirits, knowing where this is coming from. And man, we need to pray for discernment in these days where Satan uh, is using his sort of Christianese talking the lingo. Um, and, and that's where, by the way, I would say some of these so-called Christian theologians and scholars that the Discover Channel and the, the uh, History Channel and some of these other college Christian colleges and professors that are, are really not believing in the inspired, inerrant Word of God. And they sound very spiritual and deeply theological, but it's just Satan speaking Christianese. And you know, frankly, to me, it's more dangerous, these, uh, some of these Christian universities that don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and say the Bible is not reliable and we can't really trust it. We don't have the original manuscripts, so it's really twisted. And we don't, there's, this, there's this lingo that these guys use that sounds so esoteric and so um, you know, academic, but it's really just Satan talking Christianese. And uh, I believe that's more dangerous than the, the prophet University of Oregon that's talking about evolution versus you know, creation being uh, wacko. At least you know where he stands. But it's these Christian so-called scholars that are diminishing God and his word. They're the ones where Satan is just having a field day, planting questions in the people's hearts, in the kids' hearts of the universities and colleges. Those that are watching Discover Channel and History Channel, these guys with their cardigans and their pipes puffing away, uh, they don't know what they're talking about, but they sure sound good. Be careful. The Bible says that those, there's those guys that profess themselves to be wise, but they're really just fools. Professors of wisdom, but just fool. That's the Bible. The Bible says that. Well, this guy is sort of using that as he cries out in the Jews' language. Do you know the devil speaks your language? And he wants you to be intimidated. That's, that's what we gather from this story. So he says, the great king of Assyria says, your king, Hezekiah, he's making you trust the Lord, but he's, he's lying to you. Uh, in fact, um, verse 14, Thus saith the king, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you. Uh, 
Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Syria. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me, and eat ye every one of his vine, every one of his fig tree, and drink ye out of the one waters of his own cistern. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Um, so he said, hey, just come on out here, you guys. We'll, we'll, it'll be wonderful if you just come out here to us. Don't listen to the king. He's just insecure. You know, he's, he's just trusting in his God, but it's all a lie. Verse 18, beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamat and Arphad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim? And have they delivered Samaria out of thy hand? Who are they among all the gods of these lands that have delivered their land out of my hand? And the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Now, Ravshak is turning on thick. He's saying, are you kidding me? You guys are going to trust in Hezekiah who says, your God's going to save you? And he said, what about all those other nations and their gods that they thought were going to save them? They're all history now, literally history, because the Assyrians wiped them all out. And then it gets a little closer to home when he says, the people of Samaria, they trusted in their God, which remember, that's the same God technically that the Jews worship. The Samaritan area was at the time Jewish people worshiping Jehovah. But see, that was the lie of the, of the enemy. Do you remember what gods they were worshiping up there in Samaria? It wasn't Jehovah. They were worshiping golden calves under the leadership of, you know, Jezebel and Ahaz and, and all those guys were worshiping gods and goddesses. They were total pagans up there in the north. But you almost wonder if the Jews there in the south were thinking, oh man, our brothers up in the north, they were even wiped out by the Assyrians. And they, they were Jews, people of the true God. But the enemy didn't remind them that, yeah, but they were worshiping false gods at the time. So what's the point? The enemy's trying to raise questions in the mind of all these guys standing on the wall. And you got to understand, those men on the wall would go back into the city and say, man, did you guys hear what they said out there? They, they said, right, don't believe Hezekiah. Don't follow the word of the Lord because all these other nations have fallen to the Assyrians and we're going to be the next one in line. So there would have been great fear and consternation by the people having heard, you know, Rav Shaka, the trash talker. So the cabinet's challenge here was to, to, uh, to not talk in the Hebrew tongue, but to speak Assyrian and then not to f get sucked into Ravshaka's trash talking. Um, so what happens? Well, that brings us to number four on our list of this chapter, the people's response. It's there in verse 21. But it says, they, the people, held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was saying, answer him not. Hmm. They didn't answer him. Interesting. Um, sometimes the best answer is to not answer. You know, um, I, I think this is interesting because, you know, should we dialogue with the devil? Should we argue with the devil? 
you know, again, going back to the 80s, televangelists that were doing all these devil things, they were like, I demand you devil. Remember, remember these people got all up in a tizzy and turned colors and got all freaked out and it makes good TV. But, um, you know, the, the gyrations around, you know, the devil and demons, I think that people just think that's this, this kind of fun. You know, it's like watching some movie of The Exorcist or something where, you know, they're casting out devils and they like to over-dramatize it. Um, you know, a good example for us to follow is in the book of Jude. Now, Jude only has one chapter, but I'll just read to you. You can jot this down. Jude chapter one, the only chapter, verse nine says this. Um, remember when Moses died? It says here in verse nine of Jude, yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, disputed about the body of Moses, but did not bring against him, Satan, a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. What's going on here? Well, there's a lot, but um, when Moses died, there was a contending over the body of Moses. And there's reasons for that, which you don't have time to go into tonight. But basically, Michael and Satan, they've got an issue now because Moses' body. And so what does is, what is Michael the archangel do? And I think this is of great importance. He doesn't bring a railing accusation. I command you, devil. He didn't do that. That was just TBN, you know, back in the 80s. No, you, you, what you got to do is say, um, <laughs> no, uh, Michael, he said very calmly, no gyrations, no shaking, no green vomit. He said, um, the Lord rebuke thee. The Lord rebuke thee. That's it. Now, um, he didn't say, I rebuke you. He said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, uh, here's the thing, what's even more interesting. Does anybody recall, for you that are Bible students, ultimately Satan's gonna be defeated and he's gonna be bound up, chained up, and put away into the abuso. Does anyone remember who is the one who's going to bind up Satan? Anybody? If you said Michael the archangel, you got that right. Uh, Michael the archangel is going to subdue Satan, chain him up, and put him in the abuso. Now, the reason this is really cool is a bunch of reasons. Michael is sort of a warrior angel in the Bible, and um, I believe there's evidence that he might even be the angel that comes into the part of the story toward the end here. <coughs> but all that to say, Michael, um, he's contending with Satan in Jude, verse 9, but he doesn't fight Satan at that time. He could have, and it seems that he's powerful enough to wipe out Satan. This is so important because Christians get this all tweaked out. If you were raised to think God and the devil are opposites, and they're just, you know, it's this cosmic battle, and boy, we sure hope God wins, that's ridiculous. That's, you know, like, you know, saying the Dallas Cowboys football team is going to go against the Athey Creek Cougars, uh, the, the middle school across the freeway over here, and there's going to be a football game. And boy, we sure hope that the Dallas Cowboys can win. Uh, you'd say, that's ridiculous. Uh, people might die uh, because the Dallas Cowboys, you know, they're huge and they're, they're, they're professional athletes. And the Cougars are just a, a little junior high football team. You see, it's ridiculous. And that's what, when we say, boy, God's got the battle with the devil. That's just a stupid comparison. Oh, well, then is it Jesus and the devil? Are they opposites? <clears throat> Jesus is God. Same thing. Jesus is way more powerful. He was there at creation. He's the one who created all things with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's all part of the same deal. But as it turns out, Michael the archangel and Satan are opposites. They're both created beings. 
They're both angels. One's fallen, one's not. And Michael, you know, um, Michael is a warrior angel. What was, what was Satan uh, seem when he was uh, Lucifer before the fall? It seems that he was a worship leader. Now, I, I love worship leaders. We have great worship leaders in our congregation. And, and by the way, they're unlike a lot of worship leaders I know. These, a lot of our worship leaders here at Aether are very uh, uh, capable, physical guys, like my son Joey, Mr. Jiu-Jitsu, and uh, I wouldn't tangle with them. <laughs> but, but a lot of worship leaders, I, I would put, so you, basically you got the MMA angel, Michael the archangel, against the worship leader. What are you going to do? Uh, that's, that's what we're seeing. In, you know, so Satan's got instruments for hands. Michael is this just weapon. Um, and so the Bible says Michael's going to wipe out Satan. He's going to be the one to chain him up and bind him up. Um, and so we get all heebie-jeebie as Christians. Well, I hope God wins. And it's just ridiculous. Um, the reason I go into this is because he, this is what Rav Shaka is you know, trying to do. He's trying to get them to sort of get into it with him. He wants to lure them in and have them argue the point. But I love that Hezekiah's men say, we're not going to say a word. They're not going to say, we command you, Rabchak, in the name of God. They didn't do that. They just were silent. Um, You know, I have to admit, uh, you know, like if you see boxing or some of these sports where people, you know, are athletes, there's a lot of people that talk big. But I've always loved the athletes that don't say anything, but they just do. Um, you know, I mean, there's something about that that's kind of cool. They're very humble. You know, I remember <laughs> when I was a kid, I, it was fun watching Muhammad Ali because he was so, you know, loud. Um, and he'd always say, you know, fly like a you know, butterfly, sting like a bee. No one's as great as Muhammad Ali. Like, that was fun to watch. Uh, I remember hearing the story of Muhammad Ali on an airplane, and he was sitting there in his seat, and uh, the flight attendant came, Mr. Ali, it's time for you to buckle your seatbelt. And he said, Superman don't need no safety belt. And she, she, she said, um, Mr. Ali, Superman don't need an airplane either. <laughs> I, thought, I thought that was pretty good. Uh, but, you know, he, he was known for being kind of the, the guy with the, the fast-talking, you know, athlete. But there's something about the, the very humble one that doesn't say anything. That's the one you got to be careful about, the person that's not boasting. Um, see, and that's what Satan does. He loves to trash talk. And he loves to intimidate with his words. And that's what Rabshakeh is trying to do. Now, why did these men not speak against Rabshakeh? Um, it's out of obedience to the commandment that Hezekiah gave. Did you see that? Verse 21, but they held their peace and answered him not a word for the king's commandment was saying, answer him not. Don't talk to him. Good word maybe for some of you, you know, maybe you were raised for whatever reason to start speaking to the devil. Um, don't do that. Pray to God and say, the Lord rebuke thee, um, like, like Michael. Uh, give it over to the Lord. The Lord will fight for you, the Bible says. You don't, you don't have to do battle with the devil. Um, the Lord is the one who will fight. And that's kind of where these guys are at. They're gonna, this is where the rubber meets the road. Are they going to just fight back and trash talk him? Or are they going to just answer him not a word? Well, they, they obey Hezekiah's. The response was silence. So number four, the people's response. Verse 22, it says, Then came Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, that was over the household, and Shivna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, to Hezekiah, with their clothes ripped, and told him the words of Rabshakeh. 
Uh, ripping of the clothes would just be to show their grief of their situation, the drama. The Jews would go straight to ripping their clothes when things were bad. They'd say, oh, and uh, that's, that's, these guys come up with torn clothes because of Rav Shaka. So they, they obvi- Rav Shaka obviously got to them to a degree. Well, chapter 37, verse 1, it goes on, and this is the, if we're keeping our description going, remember I told you two chapters. So number one, the setting, verses 1 through 3. Number two, the commander's mockery, 4 through 10. Uh, number three, the cabinet's challenge, verses 11 through 20. And then number four, the people's response, verses 20 and 21, 21 and 22. But now, number five, chapter 37, is Hezekiah's faith. Hezekiah's faith, verses 1 through 4. It says in verse 1, It came to pass when King Hezekiah heard it that he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Man, I love that. What does he do? He's going to the house of the Lord. What a key. Well, Brett, we can't even do that right now because of the COVID. Um, do you know that, that, that there's a different kind of house now that's more important than this building here at Athey Creek? Uh, people make too much of this today, I think. Maybe this COVID crisis and this pandemic is, is good in that we realize that it's not all about the church building. It's about your body. What? My body? Yeah. Your body. What? Don't you know? Paul says your body is a temple to the Holy Ghost. So you can go and seek the Lord and pray no matter where you are. The Holy Spirit is in you. God's presence fills your life and you can seek the Lord. And we're so blessed because, you know, uh, Hebrews tells us what we, we don't have to enter into the Holy of Holies anymore. They're in the temple. But we get to enter in by a new and living way. Through the blood of Christ, we have access continually to God. But this is a picture of that where we go to the Lord in prayer, seeking his face. This is what Hezekiah does. He goes to the house of the Lord. By the way, I love Psalm 55, verse 22. It says, cast thy burden upon the Lord and he shall sustain thee and he shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Man, I love Isaiah because he's, um, or Hezekiah, I should say here, and Isaiah later, but he's gonna be casting his cares now on the Lord. So he goes into the temple there to seek out the Lord. Good move, Hezekiah. Verse two, and he sent Eliakim, who was over the household of she and Shevna the scribe and the elders of the priests covered with sackcloth unto Isaiah. So they send out to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said to Isaiah, verse three, thus saith Hezekiah, this day is a day of trouble and of rebuke and of blasphemy. For the children are come to the birth, and there is not strength to bring forth. <laughs> Interesting language for you Bible prophecy buffs. And if you know the picture of Assyria and the Antichrist and the end times, um, this imagery is interesting. The labor pains of a child being born for the mother. It says, man, we're, the baby's coming, but we're just out of energy. And it's, it's time to push for you that have had babies. And you kind of think, but we're just totally out of steam. Um, That's what these guys say to Isaiah. And they go on, verse four, it may be the Lord thy God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom the king of Assyria, his master, has sent to reproach the living God and will reprove the words which the Lord thy God hath heard. Wherefore, lift up thy prayer for the remnant that is left. So they're really asking Isaiah, you know, to, you know, help out. We need your help. 
So, verse 5, the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. Now, in uh, this next section, number 6, this is our sixth section, Isaiah's response from the Lord. So they go to Isaiah and say, man, we're in trouble, we're, we're wiped out, we're discouraged. Rav has been speaking, you know, rebuke and blasphemy. What are we going to do? So the sixth section here is Isaiah's response from the Lord, verses 5 through 7. So it says, Isaiah, it says, so the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said unto them, Thus shall ye say unto your master, Thus saith the Lord, Be not afraid of the words that thou hast heard, wherewith the servants of the king of Assyria has blasphemed me. Behold, I will send a blast upon him, and he shall hear a rumor, and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Now this is interesting. You know, all this talk from Rabshakeh, you'd think Isaiah would give him a little more. <laughs> you know, I say, what are we going to do? Tell us a word from the Lord. Okay, here it is. It's not going to be okay. That's pretty much what he says. Two little verses. It's going to be all right. Uh, they're going to go. They're going to. They're going to go back, sort of, with their tail between their legs, um, and it's all good. <laughs> Trust the Lord. Uh, I like the simplicity. He doesn't have to try to match Rabshakeh's rhetoric. Um, he just says, "Man, we just trust the Lord. Uh, the Lord, uh, don't be afraid of the words that you've heard from Rabshakeh." I'm going to send a blast upon him, Isaiah says. Um, good, good thing. Um, now, um, basically, this prophecy is given from Isaiah verse 7. Behold, I will send a blast upon him. He shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. I will cause him to fall by the sword. Keep that in mind because we're going to kind of, when we wrap this up tonight, we'll talk about what that all means. Now, that brings us to number seven, God's defeat of Assyria. Number seven, verses eight through basically 38, we have the destruction of Assyria. You want to read about that or should we save it for next week? <laughs> let's, let's finish up this destruction of what's going to happen. This is a great story. So after Isaiah says, chill, it's going to be okay. God's going to take care of it. Verse eight, so Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he had heard that he was departed from Lachish. And he heard saying concerning Tirhakah, the king of Ethiopia, he has come forth to make war with thee. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, thus shall ye speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, let not thy God in whom thou trustest deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, thou hast heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by destroying them utterly, and shalt thou be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, which, go, which my fathers have destroyed, as Gozan, Haran, and Rezeph, and the children of Eden, which were in Telassar? Verse 13, where is the king Hamat, and the king of Arphad, and the king of the city of Sarfavaim, Hena, and Iva? These are all places that the Assyrians just totally obliterated. And verse uh, 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up into the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed unto the Lord saying, now pause for a second. Okay, what, what's just happened? It's a little hard to follow if you're, if you're not familiar with what actually happened. But here's the deal. Rabshakeh's besieged Jerusalem. They're there. Suddenly Rabshakeh's got to leave. <laughs> and why is he leaving? Well, as it turned out, Sanharib was having some trouble 
with some other areas and nations. So Rav Shaka and his army had to go and fight. So Rav Shaka says, listen, I'll be back. And don't you think this is your God delivering you the fact that we're leaving right now? So they leave and then they're gonna come back. Uh, and uh, and uh, he's promising, don't think that you're off the hook. And so it's another threat saying, uh, we're gonna be gone for a little while, but we'll be back to wipe you out as well. And so this letter comes to Hezekiah. And so what does Hezekiah do with the letter from Rav Shaka? He goes up to the house of the Lord and spreads it out um, before the Lord. And, and Hezekiah prays unto the Lord. Now, if you have a problem, just spread it out before the Lord. Lord, here's my problem. You know, um, James talks about you have not because you ask not. And I love that Hezekiah just simply says, Lord, you see this letter. Uh, show me what to do. Give me wisdom. Give me direction. Give us protection. Um, he spreads out the letter. This is a classic Bible story where Hezekiah spreads out Rabshakeh's nasty letter and he spreads it out before the Lord. Well, this prayer that he prays is pretty cool. Hezekiah spreads out the letter and then we have his prayer and it's just a short little prayer. Verses 16 through 20 is the prayer of Hezekiah. Let's take a look at it. He says in verse 16, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel that dwellest between the cherubims, Thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and the earth. Incline thine ear, O Lord, and hear. Open thine eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sanharid, which hath sent to reproach the living God. Of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their countries, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they have destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord, even thou only. There's, there's several prayers in the Bible that we can put right up there, some of the great prayers of the Bible, and I'd say this is one of them. Um, just a few verses. You can pray this prayer in 45 seconds. Um, I love it. You know, a lot of times I think the church, we get into this funny thing where the Lord hears us for our much speaking. We're going to do a 24-hour prayer thing. And that, there's value in that. I'm not, I'm not knocking that necessarily, but I, I get a sense that some Christians are a little bit afraid to uh, say a little 45-second prayer because, well, that's not fervent prayer. Fervent prayer is 24 hours of fasting and praying. But, you know, some of the best prayers in the Bible you can pray in seconds. Elijah's prayer takes about 15 seconds, the one that called fire down from heaven for, for the prophets of Baal, 15 seconds. Lord, remember the prophets of Baal spent the whole day trying to cry out and shriek and gash themselves with sharp rocks and blood spurting and come on, Baal, make this thing happen. Whole day and finally, Elijah the prophet says, where's your God? Is he off using the restroom? He, he literally says that if you read the Hebrew text. Is he on a vacation? That's what he says. And then Elijah basically says this little prayer, okay, Lord, fire, and the whole thing's consumed. Does the Lord hear us for our much speaking? The answer is no. Um, so you have to understand that even Luke chapter 18, Jesus addressed this with the woman and the unjust judge, you know, uh, who came and bugged him over and over again and finally got her request. How much more will the Lord hear your request? So I love that Hezekiah just gives a simple prayer, but let's break this prayer down because I, I wanna show you the elements of this prayer that I think are worth us modeling and learning from. 
Um, notice number one, praise. He starts off with praise. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. I love how he starts off, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel that dwells between the cherubims. Remember the cherubims were the angels on the Ark of the Covenant and the Shekinah glory, the kabod of God was over the Ark of the Covenant there in the Holy of Holies. He's saying, God, you're the one whose presence is over the cherubim. Thou art the God, even thou alone, of, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou, you have made heaven and earth. Boy, if, if, you, if you've got that truth, that God made the heaven and the earth, nothing's hard after that. Can God deliver the Jews from Rabshakeh? Yes, because he said, let there be light. There's the sun in the sky. Like if God can do the sun with just speaking, let there be light, Assyria is no big deal. See, that's what Hezekiah is doing. He starts with praise. Lord, you are the God of all creation. That's why, by the way, creation is such an important part of our Christian faith. And while I think Satan's been attacking that one from, from the you know, 50s and 60s in our country, where even Christians now have theistic evolution, where they believe, well, it just happened through evolution. No wonder people don't trust in God anymore. They don't believe God can create the heaven and the earth with just speaking a word and in six days creating the heavens and the earth. Um, we need to get back to that real faith that God is able to create. Because um, that's the God we serve. Hezekiah has no question who created the heaven and the earth. I hope you have no question as well. But he starts off with that praise saying, Lord, you're the one who created, you're in charge of all the nations of the earth. You're the creator of all things. So number one, praise. Then number two, he, he brings the problem before the Lord. He says, incline thine ear before the Lord and hear, open thine eyes and see and hear the words of Sanhariv, which, um, which has sent a reproach to the living God. He's acknowledging that it's not just against the Jews, it's against the living God. Sanhariv and Rabshakeh were challenging the true God. So he shares the problem. Um, and he goes on and does that in verses 17, 18, and 19. But in verse 20, that brings us to the third part of prayer. Praise, problem, and then petition. His petition. Here's his request, verse 20. Now therefore, O Lord our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord. His petition was save us. I love that the Lord doesn't need us to articulate in detail, you know, Lord, would you save us from Rabshakeh? Save us from Sanhariv? Save us from all the 185,000 soldiers that are encamped outside of our city? Like he didn't have to wax eloquent and speak with thousands of words. He just said, Lord, save us, the petition. So you got the praise, the problem, the petition. But then lastly, he acknowledges the purpose. That what was the purpose that Hezekiah gives at the end of verse 20? that all the kingdom of the earth may know that thou art the Lord, even thou only. Hezekiah knew the main thing at stake was God and his reputation. That the, are we really the Jews, God's chosen people? And if we are, Lord, you need to save us because you're the one who's being looked at here. And by the way, that's one thing about the Jews that you gotta admit, there's, there's no greater proof, I think, of God's existence on the earth than the Jewish people because God has preserved them, protected them. And even though they've been through horrible things, man, when you look at the Jewish people, you see God's mighty hand all throughout their history. So he gives the purpose, Lord, that the earth may know that you are the Lord. Well, after this prayer, as we kind of get ready to wrap this up, after this prayer, uh, it says in verse 21, then Isaiah, the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah, 
saying, thus saith the Lord God of Israel. So Hezekiah prayed, spread out the letter, and now Isaiah has given the answer. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, whereas thou hast prayed to me against Sanharib, king of Assyria. Um, Verse 22, this is the word which the Lord hath spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, hath despised thee and laughed thee to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem hath shaken her head at thee. Whom hast thou reproached and blasphemed? And against whom hast thou exalted thy voice and lifted up thine eyes upon high, even against the Holy One of Israel? This is interesting because Isaiah starts off saying, okay, Rav Shaka and Sanharev, who have you really gone against? You're not against the Jews, you're against the Holy One of Israel. Now, for you Bible students, this is, um, there's, it's like, again, Isaiah's gaze goes past the local situation starts talking about the Virgin of Israel and the Holy One of Israel. Whenever we see that title, the Holy One of Israel, it's often referring to the Messiah, the one who's coming, who would be born of a virgin. Um, in, in a way, Isaiah, if you're, if you're astute to Bible types and imagery and stuff, you realize Isaiah is saying, you have, you've gone against God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and there's an implication of the Messiah. Now, why would the Messiah, Jesus, be brought into this discussion? The answer is the further part of this prophecy of the Assyrians um, points to the Antichrist. If you recall in our previous studies, it's his gaze, Isaiah's gaze goes past this story and into a second fulfillment of this in, in the, the Antichrist who's coming and Christ who's going to come and destroy. So uh, just a reminder, and I think Isaiah is bringing that all up here. Verse 24, by the servants thou hast reproached the Lord and hast said by the multitude of my chariots am I come up to the height of the mountains, to the sides of Lebanon, and I will cut down the tall cedars thereof and the choice fir trees thereof, and I will enter into the height of his border and the forest of his Carmel. I have digged and drunk water. With the sole of my feet have I dried up all the rivers of the besieged places. Hast thou not heard long ago how I have done it, and of ancient times, ancient times that I have formed it? Now have I brought it to pass, and thou shouldest be to lay waste defense cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore their inhabitants were of small power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field, as the green herb, as the grass on the housetops, as the corn blasted before it be grown up. But I know thy abode and thy going out and thy coming in and thy rage against me. Because thy rage against me and thy tumult is come up into mine ears, therefore will I put my hook in thy nose and my bridle in thy lips, and I will turn thee back by the way which thou camest. Man, (laughs) this is the Lord speaking through Isaiah to Sanhariv and Rabshakeh saying, I'm the Lord and I'm the one who does everything. That's verses, you know, 24 through 27. Drying up wells, you know, raising up and tearing down nations and doing all the things that God does. Um, but he says, but, but you guys have been putting hooks in people's noses for decades now. I'm going to put hooks in your noses. You, you wonder if, if Rabshakeh and Sanhariv, if they got a little pause, thinking, hmm, who are these Jews, this feeble little group in Jerusalem, and how are they going to do that? Were they afraid? 
Maybe not, we don't know. But the Lord says, I'm gonna put a hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips. Um, and I'm gonna turn you back by the way you came. Verse 30, and this shall be a sign unto you, you shall eat this year. Now, now he's talking to the Jews, by the way, shifting gears, verse 30. This will be a sign to you, Jews, you will eat this year such as grows itself, and the second year which springeth of the same. And in the third year sow ye and reap and plant vineyards and eat the fruit thereof. And the remnant that is escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. Interesting stuff, man. We could camp out on this all night. But basically he's saying, listen, Jews, uh, don't worry, you'll have food. The food you're gonna get this year will last you two years. And then on the third year, plant and reap and sow again. But there's a, there's a little bit of a language. Verse 31 is a good word. Um, it says, the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. Um, you know, you can't bear fruit upward until you sink your root downward. There's a great truth tucked away in this little verse. And we are to root ourselves as Christians in the word of God, the seed of the word hitting the soil of our hearts. And if our roots go deep, then the, the fruit will come and it'll be plenty of fruit. Jesus talked about that didn't he, in a parable of the sower. So here's that thing. And, and that's the question. I worry that Christians are not rooting downward deeply. Um, and, and so we're not bearing fruit greatly. We're, we're a feeble bunch. Like, the, remember the roots that were shallow in the story of Jesus's parable, that they, the sun came up and it scorched the plant because they didn't have no, they had no, you know, depth of root. But uh, before you can bring fruit upward, you must root yourself downward. Very important. And I, I hear Christians, and, and they sort of give themselves away. And I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm just saying you'll know them by their fruit. And why is there such feeble fruit by so many? It's because they've not rooted deeply. They've not rooted downward. Um, they've got this sort of tacked-on faith of a belief in God. Yeah, the man upstairs has been reading the good book, and, you know, God is this and God is that, and, you know, God showed me and told me. But there's no depth to their faith, which comes from the reading of the Word, the sowing of the Word in the soil of a man's heart and letting it root deeply. And so when the sun comes up, it's scorched immediately. Man, watch out for that. Make sure and do really what you're doing tonight is a step in the right direction for us to do a Wednesday night Bible study and go through Isaiah, it helps root yourself deeper in the word. And if you take root downward, you'll bear fruit upward. That's what it says. Verse 32, for out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant and they that escape out of Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts shall do this. In other words, all the other cities around Jerusalem were wiped out by the Assyrians, but Jerusalem remains. And the people that are in Jerusalem, they're gonna be the remnant left. Um, the Lord's gonna do this. Verse 33, therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shields, nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake, and for my servant David's sake. Now pause for a second. Why is the Lord going to do it? He's going to do it because of his sake and for David's sake. David was promised to the, from the Lord to David that, that uh, Jerusalem would not be totally wiped out and, and that eventually Christ would come and rule and reign on that throne. Still yet to happen. But he would not wipe out the Jews completely. They would go through seasons 
of trouble because of their own sin, but the Lord made an everlasting covenant with the Jews. That's why the Jews still exist today is because God made a promise and that's why he's not gonna destroy them here. So that was the word from Isaiah, from the Lord saying, I'm gonna take care of this. So quickly, we see the end of the story in really just one verse. One verse, verse 36. It says, then the angel of the Lord went forth and smote the camp of Assyrians, a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. The end, just one little verse. Isn't that amazing? Um, now you, you say, this is, this is weird to me. Like, okay, so the Lord just wipes out these people. Um, you know, and some of you say, well, how did it all go down? Well, the story, you know, if you recall is in 2 Kings chapter 19. And basically that whole story is where an angel of the Lord came and wiped them out. But there's not much more given even than that. We know it was an angel, probably Michael the archangel, because remember, he's the warrior angel and he comes and just one angel wipes out 185. The King James uh, word is 104 score and 5,000. That's 185,000 soldiers. But Brett, I don't get the language. When they rose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. How can dead corpses arise? Well, this, this language here is kind of funny. There's a few different theories on that. One is that when the Jews arose and looked over the, the fenced city of Jerusalem, they saw all the dead corpses. Um, that could be, but I have a, 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 an ulterior theory, I think, um, that is perhaps even more in line with scripture. And that that is not all, for some reason, we all think that all the men were slain but we know that 185,000 were slain. I'm of the opinion that um, there were a bunch of people, maybe all the commanding officers were alive. So that when they woke up, they looked around and thought, well, we don't have an army. There's like 10 of us left or a hundred of us even, but there's nothing we can do. And, and this is why, um, the reason I think that's important is because the, the prophecy was given earlier in our chapter 36 and 37, that they would go back to their Assyria um, and uh, they would be wiped out, but they would go return the same way they came. So those dead men didn't, but there was a, a remnant of the Assyrian army that went back. And I believe Rav Shaka was one of those guys that probably weren't killed and went back and told Sanharib, uh, we lost the whole army. How did we do that? The answer, um, an angel came and killed them all at night. When we woke up in the morning, everybody was dead except for us. And they lived to tell the tale back up in Assyria and the reputation of God saving the Jews would go out for all the kingdoms of the world to see. What a radical story. What an amazing deliverance. Who would have thunk it? Can you imagine the Jews asking the Lord, how are you gonna, Isaiah says you're gonna protect us, how? And with God, that's almost a fruitless question. How are you gonna provide for us, Lord? The how is not a problem for the Lord. The Jews made this mistake many times. Abraham and Sarah are getting into their 80s. How are we gonna have a child? So they try to make it happen because they didn't know the how. But the how was God was gonna make Abraham and Sarah pregnant when they were in their 90s and that she would give birth to a child. Um, Moses was out in the wilderness with the children of Israel and they were saying, Lord, we're gonna die of starvation. How are we gonna feed these people? And Moses gives this false dilemma to the Lord. Lord, should we go kill our flocks and herds or should we go fish in the sea? And the Lord says, no. Well, which one, fish or, 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 or our flocks? No, I'm gonna just make these little birds fall from heaven and you'll be able to eat them. 
<laughs> and they had so much food from those birds that the Bible says that they, eat the, they ate the meat with like gluttony so much that they had meat coming out their nostrils. <laughs> what an image that is. But all that to say, the Lord, the how is not a problem for the Lord. Would you remember that in your conflict? How are we gonna make it through the coronavirus pandemic? The how is not a problem for the Lord. Um, the Lord is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we would ask or even think. And who would have thought the Lord would say, yeah, the Assyrian army, you're not even gonna lift a pinky and they're gonna be all wiped out. There's not gonna be one arrow fired and they're gonna be, how would you do that, Lord? Easy for the Lord, just an angel wiping them out in the middle of the night. Um, so um, it says here in verse 37, so Sanharib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at um, Nineveh, which is that Assyrian city where Jonah preached. And it came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god. Um, this is the demise of Sanharib, by the way. Um, he's there in the house of Nisroch, worshiping his god, and Adramelech. Uh, and Sherezer, his sons, smote him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Armenia and Esarhaddon. The son reigned, his son reigned in the said. We know from history that um, the sons came in, uh, Sanarib was worshiping Nisroch. His sons came in and knocked over Nisroch, this idol, just knocked him over and then slew their father. And uh, that was Sanharib's demise. Um, that's the way he ended. He's a wicked king. Along with Rabshakeh, they, they ended up dying, but the Jews kept going. Before, I know the hour is late, but let me just wrap it up. Satan wants to mess with you. And remember in 2 Corinthians 2.11, that we're to be aware of Satan's devices. Really quick, really fast. Satan wants to, number one, drop this down, break down your confidence in God. He wants to break down your confidence in God. Number two, he wants to belittle the good things that you do. Remember, he belittled Hezekiah's tearing down of the idols, doing the good things, and he belittles that. Satan will try to make you feel puny for the good things you've done. He'll break down your confidence in God. He will belittle the good things that you do. Number three, he will bait you with prizes. Remember the 2,000 horses? Hey, I'll give you some horses and we'll, we'll give you presents and you'll be able to come to Assyria where there's a land that's flowing with milk and honey. He tried to lure them with prizes, bait them. So he'll break down your confidence, belittle the good things you do, bait you with prizes. Number four, this is my favorite B word, bamboozle you about God's provision and protection. Bamboozle means to try to fake you out and lie to you. And that's what Sanharib and Rabshak was, you think the Lord's gonna protect you? You think Hezekiah's God's gonna save you? He wants to bamboozle you about God's provision and protection. Lastly, number five, he wants to bring about questions more than answers. Hath your God really, does Hezekiah really know what he's talking about? How are you gonna be provided for? How are you gonna survive? And they bring questions. Whenever you get someone who's bringing more questions than answers, that's usually an indication of where those questions are coming from. Break down, belittle, bait, bamboozle, and bring out more questions. That's what the enemy wants to do. And we learn all that tonight from this story. Let's pray. Lord, what a powerful story here that Isaiah gives us. And I'm thankful, Lord, for your word that once again is so powerful. Lord, so relatable. We sense the enemy still doing the same exact things. The trash talking, the belittling, the bamboozling, all this stuff, Lord, the baiting, same old thing. And you tell us that we're not to be ignorant of Satan's devices. Lord, make your church more aware and even strengthened 
during these days where we live. Help us not to be given over to that spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Lord, we are thankful that you are greater than he that is in us. Uh, you're, you're greater than he that is in the world. Lord, we're so thankful that you are in us, empowering us, working in us and through us. Give us the faith of Hezekiah to lay it out before you, to cast our cares upon you, to be people of prayer and petition, Lord, because you answer, you hear, you're faithful. So bless your people tonight as we go our way. In Jesus' name, amen.